much. That was such a generous uh, introduction. I can't see everybody, so I'll just stand, I think. Um, is that better? Yeah, that's better. So um, that, was, that was extraordinarily generous. I feel like, well, now you know everything, so we might as well go straight to questions. But um, <laughs> um, this, I thought this is in association with the exhibition Home, and that actually dovetailed with some of the thoughts that I was having, because my three most recent works, um, one was the quarterly essay on translation, which came out the end of last year, and The Empress Lover, which came out in April, so it's just a month old, and um, would you believe I saw my first... Uh, this one, it's a book on Beijing, non-fiction. It has a history of Beijing, essays about Beijing, and some lists of places to go and things like that. Um, it's not exactly a travel guide. It's more of a travel companion. I just saw it for the first time tonight. I've borrowed this from the bookselling table. <laughs> one, two, one. <laughs> and so it's brand, brand new. It won't even be on sale elsewhere, I don't think, till next month, except I think they might have some at the Sydney Writers Festival. But I was thinking that I would talk about, because these three works um, deal very much with China, my China experience, Chinese, and so on, in very different ways. So, as Jean was saying, there's the slight, not really the more academic, but more me as the essayist with a touch of the academic in the, in the quarterly essay found in translation, which is a big meditation on how translation binds our world in ways that we don't even, we're just not aware of it day to day. But none of us would we would be amazed if we stopped and thought about how much translation allows us to be the people we are, to enjoy the cultural experiences we enjoy, um, and even to move around the world the way we, we, we move around. Um, so there's that. And then there's The Empress Lover, which, as Jean said, it's my second um, major fiction that's set in China. I've done short stories and so on. And, um, and then there's this. Um, and so I thought I would reflect a little bit on the notion of home and being an exotic and being somebody who feels at home in China but will never be at home in China because the Chinese, you, know, you will always be the la wai, the foreigner, when you are in China. They will say, oh, you're just like, you know, a zi and one of us, but you aren't. You will never be that. I remember one time, many years ago, being with a bunch of girlfriends, Chinese Chinese girlfriends, um, and we're having such a great time. And we'd actually had a sleepover. Can you imagine? That was really fun. We had this big sleepover, and we all told each other all of our secrets and everything. I was the only non-Chinese. And the next morning, we tumbled out of whoever's house it was at, and we went to a local... Um, Balza, a local sort of dumpling um, place for breakfast. And we're sitting there and, you know, and by this time it was just, as it is so often for me in the way I feel, it's just really natural. It's just friends, you know, and we were speaking Chinese. And the waiter just comes over and is like, wow, you know, in Chinese, you can use chopsticks. <laughs> And then he addresses my friends, and it's like, wow, she can use chopsticks. Where is she from? And they're like, you can ask her. You know, and also, I've been speaking Chinese when he came over. So it's like this kind of inability to process you, even when you're speaking Chinese, you're in a group of Chinese, as somebody who might not actually merit that total foreigner treatment. 
but you are the foreigner. And so coming to grips with this is a really interesting process of spending, as I have spent, more than half my life in and around China. Um, it's a very strange thing. I grew up in the States in a very small town, 20,000 people. Somebody said to me, that's not a small town in Australia. <laughs> but it, was a small, it, is, it is small enough, and it certainly felt small enough. And I was a huge reader, so a huge reader mainly of fiction, but um, other things as well. And I just lived elsewhere. You know, I always lived elsewhere. I lived wherever the books were um, taking me. And I was always determined I would get out of that town. And in fact, as I was growing up, there was something about American culture that just didn't connect with me. And so I don't even feel American. It's very funny because I am dual. I'm a dual citizen. But I, I feel, and I, my accent betrays my American background, but I actually feel Australian. When I got here, I thought, this is, this is right. This feels right. The, the kind of commercialization of American culture where people would, would quote uh, advertisements from the TV um, as a... As a I don't know, the humor, I just never, it just, I think I was born weird, do you know what I mean? You, you know when you're born in a place and you're like, I wasn't supposed to be here. I mean, my family has always said, you know, she's the really weird one. You know, she's like the one, I mean, it's always, in every way, um, I'd never felt like I totally fit in. So I think I was, when I discovered Chinese history, I had in university quite by accident wandering into a Chinese history courses and well being advised that there was a good course on Chinese history and I thought oh I've never even thought about that I think I'll take it um, my first year and then I was like wow that is amazing this is so interesting so I kept going um, and I began to develop this real fantasy in my head when I was in university about China, and this is where I belonged, you know, for some reason, it's one of those kind of crazy things that you do, and, and I wanted to be buried there, you know, I wanted to be, you know, I was like, you know, 20 years old and I knew where I wanted to be buried, you know, and um, I just had this complete and absolute craziness for China, which was based entirely on the books and the history and learning the language. So I went off to Taiwan, and I loved that. That was in 1977, and spent two years there and absolutely adored it. And actually, one of my best friends in Taiwan, um, one of my earliest best friends in China, was um, a young woman who was doing theater at university. And um, she was doing absurdist theater. She was a, kind of a student of boys and all this sort of thing. And, she, and I acted in one of her plays. I got to walk around the stage and say, um, to, uh, in Chinese to people, don't smoke that cigarette, don't smoke that cigarette, don't smoke that cigarette. It was, that was my whole part. It wasn't, you know, <laughs> didn't require a huge amount of acting talent, which was very lucky. Um, and that was, and then she later went on, to, she went to Germany, did some study, and she uh, became an artist, and now she's one of Taiwan's most important artists, Wu Ma Li, who's featured, she's been featured in the MCA, she's been in the uh, Venice Biennale, and all of that. But she was my best friend who I hung out with in Taiwan. Um, so I was kind of like, wow, I love Taiwan. And then suddenly China was opening up, and it was like, I've got to get to China. And I moved to Hong Kong, and then I was like, wow, I love Hong Kong. I love Hong Kong. And I was traveling to China all the time from Hong Kong. And I kind of felt I belonged in the Chinese world. And I was reviewing books for Asia Week magazine. Um, uh, when, I, when, I, when I got to Hong Kong, I didn't have a work 
permit, and I didn't have any money. I arrived with like $100 in my pocket, um, which is really crazy. Uh, and I ended up being an AMA for a while. Um, <laughs> I actually was working for a New Zealand family, cleaning their toilets and looking after their horrible children. I didn't say that. Um, and uh, I just, I don't really, you know, I'm not really the children nanny type, I think. That was really the problem. It wasn't them. It was me. <laughs> and um, that w was very much on the verge of not ending well at all when um, I got an opportunity and moved into the Oxford University Press as a uh, um, sub-editor, uh, which basically meant moving. Um, I, was, I was editing textbooks from Malaysia, and it ba basically meant uh, making sure that this is a pig was replaced with this is a pin, and the photo was replaced as well. Um, the author was notoriously fussy and wouldn't even let us change a comma. So, I mean, it wasn't, you know, when I say I was an editor, it was like hardly an editor, but um, it got me my visa into Hong Kong, my work visa, that all got straightened out. I got away from the New Zealanders. Um, and um, I didn't, I wouldn't even eat New Zealand butter for years. It was just such a traumatic experience. Now I'm fine with it, you know, but um, it was, it did take a little while. Um, and uh, <laughs> I, I've never said this in public before. <laughs> And the great thing about the press was that it was a very nine-to-five job. It also gave me opportunities to travel to China with the head of the East Asia branch um, uh, division as they were doing a, um, a, a kind of a co-production of, a, uh, there was going to be a co-production of dictionaries between the Oxford uh, University Press and commercial press and joint publishing. So it was going to be this wonderful co-production. And I was, I was the translator at all the meetings because it was rare. It was the people who studied Chinese when I studied Chinese. Now, lots of people study Chinese. At that time, you had to be slightly odd because you really, you know, ch you, you could, if you were from Australia, you could conceivably go to China um, because, uh, you know, relations were forged in 1972 by Gough Whitlam, um, Steve Fitzgerald. Uh, so there were people like Jeremy Barmay, my ex-husband, um, who went to China in 1974 at Cultural Revolution and was a student there and had these amazing experiences. But you couldn't possibly think of it as a place where you could go and actually stay, make a living. I mean, what do you, do? you know, it, it was very different. And for me, with an American passport, I couldn't even get into China. So until about 79, I think, 78, 79 was my first trip. And it was, you know, I had to go on a little uh, guided excursion. And then I was traveling with the Oxford University Press, so I had that permission. Um, but at that time, China was, you got a visa not to China, but to Beijing or to Guangzhou, or to Shanghai, and there were specific places you could go, and there were many places you couldn't go. And if you wanted to go from Beijing to, say, Xi'an, if it wasn't already on your visa, then you had to apply to, the, to a particular foreigner's branch of the police station, and they had to give you permission. And so it was a very different place to visit. Now that's the sort of, when I was studying, I was in university from 73 to 77. When I was in university, there was nothing you could possibly think of doing with a, a degree in Asian history. You know, it was, uh, you could become an academic, you could become a diplomat, or you could become a spy. 
And I didn't want to become a spy, and I didn't really want to become a diplomat. I've never been terribly diplomatic. <laughs> and um, I didn't really want to become an academic. I'd, I wanted to get out in the world. I wanted to see the world. I wanted to see China. So I just, I, it was strange. It was really strange. I don't, I had no idea what I was going to do with my life, and I think that probably is true of most of us. So we were very, as Jean says, we're a bit of a niche group. We're a bit of a strange group. So in the early 80s, in China, I met Jeremy. I met Jeremy in 1981. I met another friend, Marco Mueller, who was um, the chair of the Venice International Film Festival for eight years and is now the chair of the Rome International Film Festival. He was, uh, he, he also speaks Chinese, and, and Venice has been a great platform for films about China. Now Rome is, of films from China. Um, and so we were this odd group, and we all eventually kind of figured out what we were doing. But it also meant that we thought a lot about our relationship to this home of China, you know. And I was, when I was working for Asia Week magazine, um, which was after the Oxford University Press, and I was covering... China and Hong Kong until I got banned from Taiwan. I mean, sorry, I was covering China, Hong Kong, and Taiwan until I got banned from Taiwan for being the friend of Hoda Jian who defected to China because the Taiwan government figured I had to have done it um, because our friendship was fairly well known because he was so well known. Um, but I was... Um, where was that thought going? Yes. So before I was working for Asia Week, when I was still working for Oxford University Press, I was always, I always wanted to write. You know, I was a big reader, big writer. And I was working on novels, which which very happily went the way of the bin. Um, but I was also working on, um, you know, I wanted to write. I was working on poetry. I wrote lots of poetry. I was in a poetry collective in Hong Kong. But I also... Um, so I was writing this poetry, and I sent my poetry around for publication. And one of my poems got accepted by Asia Week magazine, and they published it. And I was so naive. Um, they, I see it in the magazine, and I thought, they didn't even tell me it was coming out. I certainly hope they're paying me. It was like 25 Hong Kong dollars or something you know, they're going to pay. Um, and so I called them up. <laughs> I said... I saw my, my thing was, you know, and the literary editor, um, who was also uh, an editor for them, it wasn't a big outfit, so he was an editor all round, um, but not the top one. He said, do you want to have lunch? I'm like, yes, of course. So we have lunch, and he asked, and I'm telling him about, he's asking me about what I studied, and I told him Chinese history. He's very interested, I speak Chinese, all this stuff. And China was just opening up, and of course it was very hard to find people who could report on it. And so... He, I, he didn't say that to me at first, but what he said is, do you review books? And I said, yes, of course. I never reviewed a book in my life. And, you know, I mean, when I was really little, the library had this thing every summer for kids to read. And, you know, you would fill out these forms which said, um, what was this book about? My favorite character. Did I like this book and why, right? And that was about as close as I'd ever got that plus school essays. <laughs> and so I'm like, oh yeah, of course. And um, he goes, right, um, so how long does it take usually to do a book review? And I thought, I'm working full time for the Oxford University Press. And I'm like, I'm thinking, how long is it supposed to take? I didn't know, you know, like three weeks a month is kind of usual, right? I'm like, a week? <laughs> It was like a game of poker, I realized, because he goes, he didn't go, wow, you know, he just went, 
okay, what if I gave you two books and you gave me two reviews at the end of two weeks? I went, no problem. And, <laughs> and that started a year during which time I was working at the Oxford University Press, writing reviews, reading and writing reviews, and I never, I never did not read a book from start to finish. Um, I wrote something like 46 reviews in one year. And then this comes back to this whole thing about foreigners in China because I was by then getting very cocky, <laughs> very sure of myself. And um, I got this book to review and it was about these, uh, this um, missionary woman, who's, she's this woman who's going to join her husband who's a missionary in China and there are all these like Christian Chinese and they're really nice and then there's all these like evil scary other Chinese and then there's um, you know it, and then there's a ship's captain who's really evil and icky and anyway I just read an essay in the village voice which divided the entire world into um, creeps and assholes and it, it said that everything divides this way so you've got jazz Dixie Dixieland jazz assholes you know fusion creeps right <laughs> tennis assholes baseball oh no baseball assholes tennis creeps and it just divide it was very funny and I thought I'll quote that right I'll say you know I'll quote this and I and I changed it just slightly to um, twits I think twits and creeps for the British, you know, we're writing in British English, which is part of my chameleon nature as well, because I have had to write in different kinds of English, you know, at different times. So twits and creeps. So I analyze this entire novel as being the story of um, a twit, who, and all missionaries are twits. The Chinese the Christian converts are all twits. The um, ship's captain is a creep, and all the Chinese who aren't converted are creeps, you know, in the in the in the worldview of this novel. And I discuss the whole novel <laughs> from this standpoint and the editor calls me up and he goes we can't publish this it's not in our style and I'm like you have a style you know like really um, and I said but it was my favorite review I'd ever written and um, and it also dealt with this whole notion of I was just sick of reading these stupid books about foreigners going to China and they were always kind of heroic and good and you know and then the Chinese were sort of you know kind of bad or that or there was a beautiful woman and then the beautiful woman was good because she went with a handsome Western male and, and this was the age of of novels like Taipan and Shogun and all those books that follow that formula. And so I was, you know, I was in this kind of high dudgeon about it. And I also was very proud of the style of this piece. And so he's like, we can't, we, you know, we're going to have to change it. And I'm like, well, I'll change it. But he goes, there's no time for you to change it. I'm going to change it. I said, you are not going to change it. And, um, and he said, I'm going to change it. I have to. We don't have any time. And I said, um, well, you're not going to put my name on it. And we had this massive row. And, um, and, he, and I said, you have, I, you know, anyway, he brought this to the chief editor, Michael O'Neill, who was an Australian. Yes, or a New Zealander. <laughs> Isn't that funny that I can't remember? He, he was a New Zealander. Took the thing to the chief editor who I never met. And the chief editor apparently never read the book's pages because it was just, you know, that kind of soft stuff at the end of the, at the, end of the magazine. So he said to her, you know, I'm having this problem, our regular book reviewer, you know, da-da-da-da, what do you think? And Michael O'Neill looked at my piece and said, hire her. <laughs> And that changed my life. Um, and so, you know, 
that's that was it. I became a journalist <laughs> without any training. It was a bit like the book review experience, you know. It's like go out and report on this. Oh, okay. I wonder how I do that, you know. And I just, I just got flung into it and loved it and was a journalist. Um, but it always occurred to me that when I wrote my novel, it wasn't going to be about foreigners. It was going to be about Chinese people. I was going to write from the inside, a bit like Pearl Buck, but better, you know. Um, <laughs> I was so annoying when I was younger. I'm probably still very annoying. <laughs> but, I, you know, but I was really seriously annoying when I was younger. And um, so I had all these like ideas, you know. Anyway... I have, over the years, thought about this question constantly. This idea of where is home and what is, you know, where is every time you, every time I land in Beijing, I feel like I'm home. Every time I come back to Sydney, I'm so glad I'm home. You know, when I go back to the States, I never feel like I'm home. Um, so it's all very sort of confusing. And so it's funny because in my books, all books are, bi all fiction is autobiographical in a certain sense that every character comes from a part of the writer or an obsession or something that the writer is interested in and wants to explore. So I remember constantly being asked with Eat Me, which is just sex from beginning to end, um, so is that book autobiographical? And I'd say, oh yes, of course. Um, and, and it's true, but it's not. Do you know what I mean? It's like... Anyway, I began to think about that, began to think about all this stuff, and um, about representations of foreigners in China, which never quite felt right to me. You know, there was often these sort of strange representations, the heroic representation, for example, of those books, um, or the, you know, the evil representation, or the, and it's just like, well, that's just so not part of my experience, which is, and the, and the vision of, I don't know, and, and there was this whole time when the Chinese, Chinese fiction was not really translated to a big audience in the West, that, not, that hasn't changed all that much. As I discussed in Found in Translation, there is quoting somebody else, uh, I think it's Lawrence Venuti, um, who talks about a cultural trade imbalance. We've got a huge cultural trade imbalance. They read so much in English, and we, we know almost nothing about them, generally speaking, you know, possibly this room accepted. But um, so I, I thought, I want to be part of this conversation. I want to be part of the translation conversation in which Chinese voices, I will help to bring Chinese voices out into the world and be that conduit. But I also wanted to be my own voice, but who was I? I mean, even recently there was this very funny moment where, um, um, oh my God, I've forgotten the name of that awful man. Um, uh, no, I won't even say his name, but you know who I'm talking about. Um, Yes, uh, I was riding out, I was, he was driving me out to Shen Xiaomin's uh, studio. Studio. Yes. <laughs> There's one person in the room who knows exactly what I'm talking about. And uh, he was driving me out to Shen Xiaomin's studio in March. I was, uh, I was in Beijing. And Shen Xiaomin's studio is out in the Great Wall. Now, this person is somebody who did a very kind thing for me and another person in this room once. Unbelievably kind and generous and um, out of the blue. And then sort of came into my life, and then I was kind of like, oh my God, what is this, you know? Uh, but we're driving along, and he's telling me he likes to uh, fight, and that he's got Ben in jail, and you know, I'm like, okay, right, okay. And anyway, we're, we're talking about all sorts of stuff, and I said something about, he said something about, a, he asked me about boyfriends, and, and I told him about a past boyfriend, and and we're chatting in Chinese, and, and 
he's obviously Chinese, and um, we're driving along, and, and he's looking at the road, and then he goes, so where was your boyfriend, where's this guy from? And I said, oh, he's Australian, and he goes, oh, you went out with a foreigner? <laughs> and then he kind of looked at me, and he went, oh, right, yeah, right, and we both laughed our heads off, but it was one of those slippage moments, and the thing is that I have those slippage moments as well, you know, and so it's a very... It's a very strange mental space to be in. So when I finally decided I was going to write a fiction about China, the first one being A Most Immoral Woman, I think at that point I just decided, right, I'm just going to write about foreigners in China. Like, just go for it. Get that perspective of George Morrison and this woman and, and, and go from there and be unashamed but not on this kind of... Try to see what it really was for Morrison, for this woman try to see what that really was and I, I enjoyed writing that book it was it was very interesting for me and then I wrote um, I worked for five years on The Empress Lover and The Empress Lover is very much a meditation on identity and I've given the, the main character Minnie uh, this thing where she's actually part something but possibly because her mother died shortly after giving birth to her. Her father was never known. Her father was, it all happened in England and her mother was sent here on a boat. And so you have this sense of, well, nobody ever knew who the father was. And then the maternal grandparents are dead. And there's no connection to the father's family. So as she grows up, she's beginning to try on different identities. And she tries on, um, you know, Spanish, sort of South American, this and that. She tries on all these identities. and she kind of comes to this Chinese conclusion. And, um, but you never know, really, whether it's true or not. I mean, it's possibly true and it's possibly not. And the thing is, is that she has decided her identity, and she's a bit of a shifter. And I felt, if you want to know what the really autobiographical aspect of that is, it's that weird, shifty sense. Um, and um, Jocelyn's not bored, she just has to go. <laughs> <laughs> she explained that to me beforehand. <laughs> Thank you, Jocelyn. Um, so I thought what I would do is, how are we going with time? We've got about 20 minutes and then questions. Oh, okay, great. I thought I would read a few passages that sort of reflect some of the issues that I'm talking about in these different books. Um, in the book about Beijing, um, it was funny because the publisher said to me, oh, you should have a chapter, you have an essay on foreigners in Beijing. And I said, because it was a book that had to, we had very sort of tight controls over the length and all this stuff, and I'd already stretched that to the maximum, the 25,000 word history, That's because it's part of a series, so they want them to be kind of matching. The 25,000 word history of the city 35,000, you know, the essays grew on the other books by about 5,000. I mean, it's an old city. You know, I start with Peking Man, 700,000 years ago. Um, I don't linger that much in, you know, that. <laughs> but um, I didn't want to devote an entire essay to foreigners because when pe we really don't make much of an impact, you know, unless we do something so bad or so good, you know, and really most of us are completely forgotten uh, except by our friends uh, and we don't make much of an impact at all and 
I think, you know, and it's very interesting. So I had this whole conversation with the thing. You know, even George Morrison, people say, oh, yes, Wang Fujing, a major shopping street in Beijing, was named Morrison Street in the 30s only in English. Only in English. Chinese maps never called it Wang, uh, never called it Morrison Street, always called it Wang Fujing. You know, Morrison has made a little bit of an impact because he was the first China correspondent, full first time, uh, full time China correspondent. He also became the advisor to the first president of the republic, Yuan Shikai. So he had a very prominent role in Chinese politics, and he also had some other things he did. So he was known, and there have been recent documentaries on him, in which I'm a talking head, um, among others. But um, there's been documentaries on Chinese TV and so on. But really, it's and there's Norman Bethune, the great Canadian doctor who um, helped people in Yan'an or on the Long March. I can't remember his. He's the legend, you know. He's the one, the great Bethune. There's Edgar Snow. Um, people like that have left their mark, but very few other of us have, and people think they have and they haven't. You go and the sort of, you know, the tide comes in and the, and the sand, the footsteps on the sand are gone again. You know, it's, it's a bit of an illusion. So anyway, I argued the chapter, oh, and also um, the, uh, we talked about, which part of it, there's these lists that they wanted to have too, like where you can go around the city, and, and the editor who'd been to China a number of times, uh, the publisher was going, oh, we should have a thing on Russiatown, which is near um, Zhitan Park. And I was like, Russiatown? It's just like, it's like where the Russians hang out and there's some, you know, the Russian traders come and they, they buy stuff and they sell stuff and, you know, like, really? We need to have that? No, I don't think so. Um, so anyway, the compromise was down to this, um, what we called a kind of a window a little mini essay or a caption within um, another chapter. And I chose to put it in the chapter on Kublai Khan's Beijing. Um, because Kublai Khan's Beijing was the most cosmopolitan vision of Beijing ever. It probably was one of the most beautiful. Um, because it was later destroyed, we don't know. But Marco Polo told us all about it. And the descriptions of Marco Polo make it sound so amazing and I've got a lot of that in this particular chapter but the other thing is that because Kublai Khan was a foreigner he was a Mongol um, Mongolia wasn't part of China China was part of Mongolia <laughs> it's a bit flip in perspective so he they had conquered China and he had no sort of sense of well this is the Chinese so the government ought to you know be made of Chinese. So he had a treasurer who was, um, I can't remember whether he was a Persian or whether he was like a Kazakh or something like that. They employed what they what at the time were called colored eye people in all levels of government. They also had Chinese people, but um, it was a very cosmopolitan place. It was also a place that was so legendary that Italians, Venetians, you know, people were drawn to Kambalik. Um, and so I decided I would place my little box called Exotica within the Kambalik chapter. And I'll just read that to you. Marco Polo tells us that at Kublai Khan's great banquets, Mongolian barons helped foreigners who do not know the customs of the court from committing such literal faux pas, there's a bit of French, um, as stepping 
a false step, a literal faux pas, as stepping on the raised threshold when entering. Because if a Mongolian did that, if they stepped on the raised threshold when entering the banquet, they would be beaten. That was a crime um, punishable by beating. The Khans, Kublai Khan's successors didn't make it so easy for foreigners in Beijing to cross that threshold. Jesuits squeaked into the Ming and Qing courts only because they possessed knowledge that the court found useful. It took an unequal treaty forced on the Qing in 1844 to legalize teaching Chinese to foreigners and another to sanction their residence in Beijing. So whereas Beijing was so open during the, the Kublai Khan's time, it, was, it began very closed and it was forced open by imperialism. By the time the Australian George Ernest Morrison, GE or Chinese Morrison, arrived as correspondent for the London Times in 1897, imperialism had forced open China's doors, but at the price of China's humiliation. In 1949, Mao shut those doors on all but communism's fellow travelers. 30 years later, Deng opened them once more, but on China's terms. Today, nearly 200,000 foreigners reside in Beijing, 70,000 of them students. Despite the conspicuousness of those of non-Asian background, the majority hail from other Asian countries, and the biggest number is from South Korea. Wang Fujing was briefly named Morrison Street in English after the Australian, but foreigners rarely leave as much of an impression on Beijing as it leaves on them. The exceptions are those who have treated it badly, such as the French and British who sacked the Yuan Mingyuan uh, uh, Great Palace in 1860, to the British man who in 2012, to the British man in 2012 whose drunken harassment of a Chinese woman led to his beating and viral shaming on the internet. Marco Polo wrote of the threshold rule that guests were not expected to stick at this in going forth again, for at that time some are likely to be the worse for liquor <laughs> and incapable of looking to their steps. But these days the expectation is that they better do so. So that's, that's a little meditation on the, foreign, the foreigner in, um, in China. I'm going to read a little bit. Um, from the new novel in a sec, but I'll just read you something really amusing from the quarterly essay. Um, if I can find it again, I did sort of mark it to myself. Here it is. Um, the, this thing about, you know, how we deal with each other, these bridges and how we perceive each other is such an interesting question. And we've often, culturally, the West, broadly speaking, whatever that is, Thank you. Um, has often had a, um, it, it wants China to conform to certain stereotypes. Um, and Alison Bernowski has written about some of those in some of her work, uh, about conceptions, mutual perceptions, you know, cultural perceptions. But um, we want the Chinese to be you know, it's just like with the with the ideal in those crazy novels. You know, you want the sort of the, the the Oriental beauty. You know, who has and you want somebody to have this special knowledge. You know, the sage thing. You know, it, the same thing is projected onto Native Americans, and the, I must say the Chinese project this sort of thing onto Tibetans and Mongolians. It's, it's, a, it's an exoticizing thing. Now, there's a story 
which a friend of mine, Jin Haina, who teaches translation uh, in China at Communications University, she's written about the very first Chinese film to screen publicly in the United States. And it's a wonderful little lesson on exoticization and how mutual perceptions go. Um, she did a case study into Song of China, the first Chinese movie ever to screen commercially in the U.S. Douglas MacLean of Paramount Pictures was traveling in China in 1935 when he saw the black and white silent film Tianlun and urged his company to acquire it. They asked for and received the filmmaker's permission to make whatever changes that they deemed necessary for a successful run in the US. Um, and it premiered at New York's Little Carnegie Cinema in 1936. In its glowing review of the film, the New York Times mentioned one of the, f it was a silent film, and one of the silent film's title cards, seven times the pear tree has come into blossom. The reviewer rhapsodized over the beautiful and poetic manner in which Chinese people expressed the passage of time. Very, very poetic, except that the Chinese original consisted of the simple, straightforward phrase, qi nian zhi hou, literally seven years later. <laughs> Not a pear tree or blossom in sight. And similarly, a daughter's very straightforward, qin ai de fu qin, dear or beloved father, was magically orientalized by Paramount and its translators into noble father. Even the title of the film was made to work a subtle exoticizing magic. Tianlun is a phrase from the Confucian classics that describes the bonds within a family. It could easily have been translated as family ties. Calling the film Song of China in English is analogous, is analogous to translating Rolf de Heer's Ten Canoes or Ivan Sen's Beneath Clouds into Chinese as Song of the Australian Aborigines. So one of the things that we're constantly dealing with as bridges or whatever is this build up this kind of cultural plaque, you know, that no dentist has ever been able to get rid of, which is composed of this accretion of, of, of images and concepts and cliches and expectations. And so as a writer and as a translator, you're always thinking about, you know, you want to be the dentist that sort of cleans it up and lets, lets the teeth Let's us see what, what's underneath, you know, it's really, it is really something. Um, do I have time for one? Yeah, one. Okay. So in, in The Empress Lover, in A Most Immoral Woman, I do have Chinese characters, um, and I, and they do have their, what's that? You do that. Yes, and, but I don't have their inner lives in the, in the, in A Most Immoral Woman, uh, they do have their inner lives, but basically it's like in A Most Immoral Woman, um, it's told in subjective uh, third person. So it's third person, but it really, it really follows Morrison's subjectivity. So we don't ever understand what this object of his lust and affection is thinking. We see her entirely through his eyes. He does have a manservant, a Chinese manservant. And so there is this Chinese character there, but I don't go into his voice, you know, as a writer, I don't do that. With this novel, I do, I have a Chinese character. Um, and it really, one of the reasons it took me five years to write this was to 
accept the fact that I think I can be, you know, I don't care what, I know that there'll be people in China who think that you cannot write about China unless you're Chinese, and there's this thing, and you know, you will, what's that? It's nonsense. It's nonsense, but it's like, you do get sort of uh, worried about it, but I just feel like at this point, I can write a Chinese character, I feel like I know this person, I can't write any Chinese character, I wouldn't write a peasant in a small village, um, because I really don't spend much time with peasants in small villages, you know? Uh, it's just I wouldn't want to do that. I feel very comfortable writing this character, who's a very urban character. Um, and um, so I do that. And then just as a final little thing, I just want to say that. But then as a final little thing, I thought I would um, read to you a passage from here in which the main character, Linny, tells her theory about foreigners in China. There are eight principal archetypes of the foreigner in China. There is the storyteller, who is also a seeker, Marco Polo in the court of Kublai Khan, every journalist, China scholar, and English teacher or traveler compelled to write a book about their experiences. Second is the missionary, the Jesuit Matteo Ricci winding clocks for the court of the Ming Emperor Wan Li, the artist Rauschenberg preaching postmodernism in the 1980s. Third is the emissary, Lord McCartney in the court of Qianlong, Kissinger in the court of Mao. Then there's the imperialist, Lord Elgin burning down the Yuanlingyuan, the Yabo smashing up a bar in Sanlitun. Fifth is the fellow traveler, Edgar Snow awed in the caves of Yan'an, any e economist or neoliberal with a hard-on, pardon my language, at the monotheistic altar of growth. Six is the profit seeker, the British pushing opium in the 19th century, the purveyors of surveillance equipment to the dictatorship today, the traders and manufacturers, Vuitton, uh, uh, Louis Vuitton and Bul Bulgari in the court of the National Museum on Tiananmen Square and Gucci and Prada in the malls. Number seven is the desperado, the whore, the dog dog's body, the pimps, the hookers, the gamblers and drinkers of Peking's badlands on the eve of the Japanese invasion, or their equivalents today, the Russian pole dancers in the clubs of little Vladivostok over by the Nigerian drug peddlers of Sanlitun, the Mongolian prostitutes, and other economic refugees. Finally, number eight is, um, is the lover who, like the hero or heroine of every China book by a non-Chinese author under the sun, is the only foreigner who truly understands China and who, overcoming obstacles, blah, 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 falls in love with a beautiful or handsome Chinese and is recognized in the great court of Chinese opinion as being not like the other foreigners and therefore wonderful, any protagonist in a James Clavell or Nicole Moniz novel. Me. <laughs> and then who she's talking to goes, that's quite a theory. I like it very much. Where do you think Sir Edmund Backhouse fits in? Perhaps there's a ninth archetype? I believe he may have been beyond archetype. Think about it. Got it. The trickster. And, as, and then there's a magic box that opens. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you very much, and I'm happy to take questions.
uh, anybody got, got questions. Uh, we've got a real authority here, so, um, you know, all coated with humor, but there's a lot, <laughs> a lot to explore and uncover. Do I need the microphone? <laughs> Thank you. Oh, and can I just say before this woman goes, Edma, Ed, Edma, I can't speak without sort of, Emma Johnson, who is the new generation of um, the, the bridges and all of this, Emma has just spent a year in Beijing and she was in Xi'an before that. She speaks French and Spanish and very, very good Chinese. Um, and she has just made a film called Beijing Being. That's a temporary title anyway. Um, she, she's 22. She made this completely on her own with no budget whatsoever. And it's actually at the post-production stage. She's going to have a crowdfunding thing on the 16th. You can look, look out for Beijing Being if you're interested on Google and come on the 16th. I'm going to be launching her crowdfunding. But she is all about, the movie is all about, and I hope we'll see some of it on the night, is all about the sense of being a foreigner, a young foreigner in particular, in Beijing, finding your place, people come and go, the connections you make with the city and with other people in the city. So, Beijing Being. Yes. Yes. Um, thank you, Dr. Sherman. Thank you, Linda. Um, I'm Gaston. I'm from Vietnam, so I have no knowledge or expertise about China at all, so particularly fascinating to hear your views. Um, my question is kind of two forms. You make a reference to the publication about Speak the translation. closely into it. Okay. Um, what, what do you think, in your opinion, why is it the contemporary Chinese readers are so embracing the Western literature? That's the first part. And the second part, can you share with us what your Chinese friends' views of your book, in particular, The Empress Lover? Uh, it's just Thank come you. out. They haven't seen it. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's uh, also, my books have never been translated um, because uh, they're either too racy uh, or there's Hou Dejian was banned from Taiwan and the whole thing centers on Tiananmen. So never sort of, you know, but I, I do have a story about a Chinese reader, so I'll bring that, come back to that. But the Chinese uh, interest in the West um, grew, they, they, were, they were completely cut off by Mao from the outside world. The only other countries that they could deal with were friendly ones like Albania, you know. Russia. Russia, for a while, you know, and so there was these different things that they could get from the outside. When China opened up, when Deng opened it up, and and some Western books were allowed to be published in the beginning, the queues would go out the door for these translated um, books from the West. The tastes of Chinese readers have changed with time. So in the 80s, people were fascinated by anything that could help them understand, first of all, where everybody else was, um, and second of all, where, for example, Eastern Europe was, because Milan Kundera was a sensation. You know, that sort of thing. So they were really interested. Now, you go into these giant bookshops, and there's a huge amount of publishing, um, of publications that are devoted to business, 
um, devoted to sort of self-help business, um, how to pass the right scores for American universities. Um, there's, uh, you know, Lee Iacocca was a sensation in China, and then Steve Jobs, um, the biography of, 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 of Jobs was, is it Jobs or Jobs? Jobs, yeah, was, you know, absolute sensation. Um, in terms of, it's, it's, there's now enough published so that they can have their own niches. So friends of mine are very interested in literary translations and they can find stuff. But also China has a really censored um, publication world. Uh, so um, what can go through, um, some things just will never make it that are important outside for reasons that you can't quite work out at first. Um, so, but there's a huge hunger. Um, from my perspective, a little sadly, it's gone away from a cultural hunger to a very practical hunger. Um, yeah, but the, yeah, I was the, gonna... Uh, Nick Jones um, took uh, John Kutsia to China. Oh, right. Accompanied him. You know uh, John Kutsia, the Australian yeah. say curtsy, but it's yeah. Kutsia put in here. And uh, the South African, uh, now Australian-based writer, who uh, wrote, who won the Nobel Prize for Literature and Science, how does happen? A sensation. Nick said, cues out the door, fan yeah. clubs. Because he won the Nobel Prize, the Chinese have an absolute fixation on the Nobel, and Liu Xiaobo is winning it in 2010, the Peace Prize, completely threw that into chaos, because the Nobel was the sort of the total goal of everything in China, um, especially literary people. Why haven't we won a Nobel Prize? Chen Zhongshu. Chen Zhongshu should have won it. He was he died. He was an old generation, incredible intellectual great writer. Missed his chance. Um, a couple others, you know, arguably completely Nobel Prize material. Then Gao Xingjian got it. Dissident living in Paris. Boo hiss. Um, and so, but there is this mystique around the Nobel that is not around the Booker, for example. And I think we understand the Nobel Prize for Literature as being a particular type of phenomenon, and it is it is very interesting, but like I know that I leap to read the Booker, and personally I would leap to read the Booker, and I leap to read the Booker shortlist and long list and all of that, um, whereas the Nobel, I, I kind of go, oh, I, I must sort of catch up with that person yeah. one day. But the Chinese are fixated on the Nobel, so that, yeah, you know. explains it to me. I yes. But you know who else had cues out the door recently? Sheryl Sandberg, Lean In. They're now Lean In circles all over China. Um, so, you know, this is, and she's been a massive bestseller, but another bestseller recent times, and I have this in this book, and I do have a bit on what Chinese read um, in, in the quarterly essay. Um, but another massive, um, strange thing, I was, I, was, it was a, I was in Shanghai and I was in a cab with Kaz Cook, the writer, and we were taking a cab from the train station, it was her very first time in, in, in Shanghai, uh, in China, yeah, in, in Shanghai, and we're, we're driving in, and um, if you want, you the seats in here. Okay, um, and we're driving in and she goes, what's that, what's that? And then she goes, what's that say? And she points to this big thing and, and my first impression was like, it was like a Maoist slogan. It was like white letters on red background. It was like really kind of very Maoist looking, you know, and I went, funny yeah. I was like, and we whizzed past, right? And I'm like, Shouling, yeah. I'm like, Shouling, yeah, Shouling, yeah. I think that's awake. And then I'm like, Fun Negan, 
Finnegan's Wake? <laughs> right? This massive sign. It was like, it was like that big, you know, it was like this massive sign. It was like bigger than that, you know. It was unbelievable. And then we learned that a woman had spent eight years translating Finnegan's Wake, part one, and it had finally come out, and it was uh, becoming a complete bestseller sensation. <laughs> And so, you know, what do Chinese read? I mean, it's just, it, you know, it's like, it's like, really? That's amazing. So, I hope that answers your question. Do you want to get the uh, microphone? This is Susan McKinnon, documentary. Um, yes. I've just, I don't even know if this is on. Hold it close. I've just been in Beijing recently. Um, I was invited to be on the jury of the documentary, the documentary jury for the Beijing International Film Festival. Now it's on. Just hold it closer. And <clears throat> I had to watch um, 10 and 19, 29 documentaries. So to, uh, uh, I don't know, to be fresh, I watched all the Chinese documentaries first, which were 10, and then I watched 19 international films. And um, they were not very good. Their, 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 their content was simplistic and uh, not, a, you know, not, not cutting edge, and the, technically they weren't very well made. And then the international work was very uh, powerful. And I couldn't get the difference in quality, and it, and it was censorship. And they didn't censor the foreign films because if they were confronting and bad, well, that's how bad a foreigner is, you know. And and the the domestic work was was tame and dull, and and yet they felt embarrassed that, that you know they knew that we were all looking at that and felt embarrassed about that. So that was one observation. But the other observation, in terms of culturally how they're consuming or how they see themselves in relation to the world. We were hosted daily by this, the Beijing Film School, and the students were constant, as soon as they realized we were there, they were constantly interviewing us, and I'm not that interesting, but there was this constant interviewing of, how are you finding Beijing, how are you finding the festival? Well, I never saw the festival, I was so busy being interviewed and talking about these films, and, and how can we, does it, do our, does our work compare with the international work and how can we do it better? Every single interview was, how can we do it better? Tell us how to do it better. And I actually felt very sympathetic towards the people that I was with, with this hunger to be doing things better. And um, that was probably my biggest takeaway. I felt sorry for them that they had to look after so many people. Well, there's, there's this tremendous... And then they're always wanting to do it better. There is a tremendous, you know, there's a lot of very smart, very ambitious, very interesting people in China, and some of them go just constantly hit their head against the wall with what they try to do. There are other documentary filmmakers who are brilliant, and they have to sneak their work outside, and it doesn't get shown in those festivals, and they would be aware of that as well. They also... Um, but interestingly, what they, the censorship would have taken place before they brought in the foreign films. So, um, Sophia, do you mind my... Yeah, okay, great. Um, Sophia is also a, a, a documentary maker, and she, um, she has a film which is supposed to go to China. 
and has run into a problem. And the, the problem is that it deals with Stalin's invasion of Poland. And, you know, and this is unacceptable because Stalin is still revered. And so you can't, you know, there, and, and, and this is really interesting. So this kind of censorship comes out of, it seems to come out of left field. Um, so what the Chinese get to see, whether it's in film or whether it's in literature um, or in art, goes through a filtering process that in turn influences the kind of stuff that Chinese are producing because they, um, if they don't travel, if they, many people do now travel, but they do, they, these are cultural references for global culture that are incomplete. And so there's this kind of interesting cycle. And now that Chinese people can travel a lot more freely, we see a lot more interesting production of globally um, interesting art in all fields. But you're not necessarily going to find it in China. I'm sorry, do we, yeah. Yeah, and then we want to make sure if we have any more questions, because I think we're running out of time. And people can speak to them just separately. Yeah, we're going to just be mingling, but... Uh, we were invited to screen at the yeah. um, a, a documentary festival oh, right. by the uh, festival organisers who were Chinese, and they did not expect that we would have any problems with censorship. Right. Um, and um, to their own surprise, yes. uh, we've been... This often happens. Back. People yes. don't really... So no one really yeah. knows the rules no. internally. That's the way it works. If you don't know the rules, you can always stop something. And nobody can complain because nobody actually knows the rules. You just assume that there is some rule that nobody has told you. So there's this, that's exactly what you ran into. Is there time for one final question or not? I just yep. wanted to add to Sophia's, this is my little right. plug for her, and the film is called Once My Mother, and it will be filmed at the Sydney Film Festival in competition. So uh, it's a brilliant film, and uh, it's such a pity. I mean, really, there's no reason for the Chinese. Uh, they might get over that. They might no, really get we are appealing, yeah. so hopefully they'll change their minds. It could happen, you right, know. Really, one last question now. We can't keep this within the time. One last, and then you can circulate. There's a question. You said there are no rules. Does that mean to say you can get away with things? No, it's, it means to say that you never know what you can get away with. <laughs> and that at any point, they can either let you get away with things, as a foreigner or a Chinese, or... They cannot, and at any point they can be letting you get away with things and then suddenly pull the plug. Yeah, so basically it's like, you know, and, and don't forget the Chinese government itself, even though it presents a very united view, um, th there's flux within that as well. And there's also so many layers of government. So you have somebody like, just to give a very brief uh, reference to a very big issue, uh, Ai Weiwei, who had uh, his, um, the very first scaf show was Ai Weiwei. Ai Weiwei was tolerated in China for, a ver you know, his work for a very long time, and then suddenly he's getting bashed on the head, and then suddenly he's getting put in prison, and, you know, and and yet he still pushes the boundaries a little bit. Um, and so what can Ai Weiwei get away with? At what point are they really going to scoop him up again 
Nobody would know, and that's one of the ways of control. It's the rule of the panopticon. It's the rule where if you have, um, Thomas Hobbes invented the panopticon as the ideal prison, and so it's, you have one person sitting in the middle and they watch everybody. You never know whether you're being watched. All the inmates, all the prisoners are around there. You have no idea whether the eye is on you or not. So you, you learn, you internalize the, the notion of keeping yourself good because you you don't know when the eye is going to turn on you and that's basically the way it works and also they can just pull a rule out of a hat that didn't really exist <laughs> so that happens too yeah thank you so much